I'm Frederick Gerton, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And this is Pushback Talks, and, and we are back again, Leilani, up, up in, in the north of Canada. Is it north of Canada, or is it just Canada? Just Ottawa. Canada? Just Canada. I'm not very yeah. north. I'm not very <laughs> south either, though. It's just far away. <laughs> it's just far away. We haven't seen each other for a year now, but it's okay. We meet every week on, on this, in the Pushback Talks. It's fine. We do. Uh, there is a disease out there. We talk a lot about the disease. There is a bad virus called corruption. Easy to get and hard to kill. That's like actually a tagline from a book that I've, I'm just reading by Sarah Chase, uh, who is an amazing American journalist, historian, I don't know, many hats. Uh, and uh, we, we have... Sarah Chase as our guest in our podcast. Isn't that cool, Leilani? Not just cool, it's really amazing. A whole world we're about to enter. Welcome, Sarah, to, to our talks. It is such a pleasure to share these moments with you. I know you are a, a gal of the world. You spent like 25 years in France and you 10 years in Afghanistan. You worked in, in Nigeria and Honduras. I mean, around the world as the NPR radio, but then also... In Kandahar, you started up a, a collective with women doing important stuff. You try to fight things that happens there. And, and then you, you run into the, this thing called corruption in Afghanistan. Yeah. In fact, uh, just to rectify, we were men and women. Oh, cool. Which in some ways is even more uh, revolutionary than just women. And we were making soap which in itself is somewhat ironic, uh, as though with our soap, <laughs> you know, we could wash clean. Ah, I was thinking the blood and the money that roots wherever, that grows wherever blood is spilled, you know. And yes, uh, I did turn to thinking about corruption, not because as a foreign, you know, as a Westerner, I was bringing, you know, Western... Um, standards or Western approaches to uh, to Afghanistan. On the contrary, I had no intention of thinking or working on corruption. Instead, it was the Afghans who came to me, desperate, saying, "How do you expect us to stand up against the Taliban when our own government is treating us as badly?" I mean, they would say, "The Taliban." strike us on this cheek and the government strikes us on that one. You know, I would have elders hitting themselves in the face to tell me this. And what they perceived was that it must be that the United States and frankly Canada and the rest of the international interveners, you know, must be in favor of this corruption because everything they were doing was enabling and reinforcing it. And I came to understand that people were being driven into the arms of the Taliban, not out of some ideological um, disgust at Western culture or, you know, promiscuity or this or that, but rather at corruption. I mean, the Taliban were able to brand themselves as more up 
upstanding and having more integrity than the Western-backed government. Now, that very word corruption is as ambiguous in Pashto, which was is the language of southern Afghanistan where I was, Corruption is as ambiguous in Pashto as it is in English or in French or in just about any other language I've ever, you know, asked for it to be defined in. That is to say, it spans this very material, you know, public integrity meaning all the way across to a kind of moral depravity. Um, and that is where some of the puritanical morality of a group like the Taliban, or indeed the early Protestants, who also arose in a violent extremist insurgency against corruption. Uh, that's how those things tend to merge. Yeah. Um, I mean, in Afghanistan, you wrote this book, Inside the... Inside Afghanistan. It's, it's the punishment of virtue yeah, inside right. Afghanistan after the Taliban. And then you wrote a book called Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security. And then you bring it like one step further, because you obviously you learned something in in Afghanistan and also in Nigeria, where you could see that that corruption was like pushing people in the wrong direction. The first thing I learned, as you suggest, in Afghanistan was that the extremist movement that the international community and, and most Afghans were battling the Taliban, um, was actually flourishing due to the corruption of the Afghan government, as I just suggested. Then I discovered that this was not just an Afghan anomaly. I mean, I had had my head in the Afghan situation, very granular, very local, for, you know, eight years. And I gave a talk uh, in Germany to a group of mostly law enforcement, but also military officers from, I don't know, 40 different countries. And I, it was actually about narcotics. <laughs> and I just couldn't resist saying that, well, actually, narcotics is just a piece of this story. Narcotics is just a revenue stream captured by the, the corrupt network in Afghanistan. Here's the whole story. And what I explained is that corruption is not a, a one-off scandal perpetrated by one venal individual and his or her cronies or one company, you know, who has captured one or two political officials. Rather, in a country like Afghanistan, certainly in Afghanistan, it was the operating system of a network that was remarkably sophisticated. That is to say, you can look at a country and say, wow, that's a failing or a fragile state or it's a, an incapable government. But if you scratch the surface, what you discover is that it may be incapable at governing, but that is not its intention. This network is incredibly sophisticated and incredibly successful at achieving its objective, which is maximizing wealth for its members. And that faced with that kind of a network and no means of civic recourse, people will, turn, will go to extremes. And in Afghanistan, the extreme was religious extremism, which is deceptive, right? Because it it's not explicitly stating corruption, or at least corruption as we understand it, as it's as it's uh, as what it's challenging. So I, I I just depicted that network idea and that 
a police officer who shakes you down for some paltry amount of money on the road, it's not just a police officer. And he's not just putting that money in his pocket. He's actually paying part of that money up the line all the way up to, you know, the interior minister. And so I had a slide depicting that. And a dozen people came up to me at the end of the talk and said, you just described my country. And I was like, whoa. And they were all of these developing countries, and most of them had an extremist religious insurgency. And that's when I came to understand that the Afghan case was, in fact, representative. And this was about 2010. So then I spent some time exploring and examining this structure that I had begun to sort of see in Afghanistan. And I realized it took a very consistent shape and form in extremely diverse countries from, as you said, Frederick, you know, Nigeria to Honduras to Uzbekistan to Nepal. Uh, not identical, obviously. These are dynamic structures. They sometimes uh, private sector, you know, business leaders are in the lead and government is kind of serving them. And sometimes a government official, you know, the head of state is really running the show and the multi-billionaires are kind of having to work for him. Different revenue streams will be captured in different countries, but the structure is remarkably similar. Because I was thinking, you know, Leilani and I, when we've been traveling the world, or Leilani in her job as a UN Special Rapporteur, you, I mean, I remember your stories from Egypt, Leilani, or when you were in Nigeria as an official visit, you, you bumped into all these structures everywhere. The corruption is like, it's always there. Then in, in, in the film Push, we talk about the corrupt money landing into our societies. Well, you know, the stolen money is then gets laundered and, and placed into our, our countries. And, and it's also a corrupting factor in, destroy, in destroying the local markets and so on. How do you, how do you think, Leilani, when you listen to, to Sarah? Mm. I have so many thoughts. I have to say that, Sarah, and, and your work is so important to the work that I've been doing. I, I, I'm glad we're now in conversation. Um, one of the things uh, I've long known about the area in which I work, which is you know housing, residential real estate, is that it is a vehicle for corruption, and it is itself a corrupt area. You Everywhere you go, you know that there's corruption related to housing. In my own work, I will admit that I've kind of stayed a little bit away from fully engaging that side of the work in which I'm engaged, and I'll tell you why, and I think... Um, you can help us unpack it. You yourself just described sort of what is corruption. And you said it runs the gamut, right, from on the political side, all the way to complete moral bankruptcy, and everything in between. And it always feels to me like so much to bite off. So it's um, so difficult to penetrate and to understand. And so then it makes me retract as an advocate. Um, So I'm just I'm interested to know um, a little bit more about your definition, just to get back to basics so that people can understand that the way I think you described it, it's like in the fabric of society kind of thing. And I think Frederick understands it that way, too. But I think it will be helpful for our listeners to hear just a little bit more about how not just what it is, but also then, of course, how it works. Often 
corruption comes to light in the form of a specific scandal that involves you know, a specific and rather small number of venal individuals. That's largely an artifact of the type of proof that's required in order for people like Frederick to actually report on it. You know, you have to get enough detailed substantiation, so you really have to focus on a single case. That's a little bit deceptive, though, because it implies that this is the work of isolated individuals. What I'm getting at is that corruption in a great number of countries around the world, and I would include the United States, consists of the operating system of sophisticated networks that link together people from very different sectors of society, which we usually understand as being separate. I mean, again, as an American, Americans can stay up all night arguing about, you know, is business worse for your health or is the government worse for your health? You know, the power of these networks is they span business and government. And they, in fact, span the out-and-out out criminal sector as well. That gives them an enormous panoply of capabilities that they can bring to bear and also an enormous flexibility. Networks, remember, are not hierarchical structures that are rigid. They are very flexible and they're able to adapt to changing situations. They're able to adapt to challenges um, and they including the loss of their leading members. So I've sometimes used the Greek myth of the Hydra uh, as a metaphor for understanding these networks because you chop a head off and two more will grow. Also partly what I really love with your work is that your focus is not on these individual juicy stories because a lot of the corruption reporting is about the big castle in the forest that Yanukovych had and and all the corrupt businessmen and every country has their own stories about corrupt people with their yachts and their and their prostitutes and whatever i'm interested in also me and leilani we're interested in in patterns you know in to to understand what are we up against so so here are a couple of features as you, as you say so the 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 hydra headedness is a pattern. And you see it in countries around the world where there have been uprisings against corruption. What you quickly discover is that often the network is happy to sacrifice one or two of its heads and new ones grow back quite uh, quickly. So the case of Guatemala is one example where there were massive anti-corruption protests led to amazing prosecutions and convictions. It overturned the government and now you have a government basically run by the same network. Egypt being another perfect example of the 2011 Arab Spring Revolution toppling the Mubarak government. And now you have um, basically all it did was destroy the one corrupt challenger to the military corrupt system that existed. Now the military corrupt system is, is back in power. So that's one pattern. Another pattern is... Um, the role of network members who hold public office. The problem, Frederick, with the, the sort of individual scandal model for understanding this that you described is that the act for which we blame the corrupt public official is basically stealing cookies from the cookie jar. And that's a problem. That is an important role that 
network members who hold public office play. Diverting and aiming streams of public monies, procurement in particular, con government contracts, and that kind of, of public monies toward network members. That's a really important role they play. But maybe even a more important role they play is to bend and repurpose the institutions and agencies of government to make them serve the objectives of the network rather than the public interest, right? And those instruments or agencies that they can't weaponize in that way, they disable, they, you know, hollow out, they leave empty of, of personnel, they underpay the staff, they reduce the, the jurisdiction, this kind of thing. And, and that is the critical role they play. Another feature that I think is really important to understand about these networks that flies in the face of the way we in the West typically understand corruption is this. Typically, we think of corruption as Leilani wants a favor from me, she asked me for a favor and I put my hand out, right? And so there's a kind of one-to-one -one exchange. Within a network, the tissue of exchanges is much more diffuse and indirect than that. So Leilani might just show up someday with a beautiful Inuit sculpture that you know she found in a gallery in Ottawa. And because she knows I love Inuit sculpture and she just gives this to me for Christmas. Well, I have an idea of the value of this and I feel indebted. And in some way I pay it back, even if it's indirectly. And so these networks are held together by this very dense and diffuse tissue of exchanges. And that makes them very hard to capture within the confines of typical anti-corruption law. You know, with push, we try to understand why our homes are getting so expensive. And of course, that journey that Leilani did and I followed, and it was became also my journey into understanding something was that our homes were suddenly a, the perfect parking place for money or a place to grow money. And we could see that the big hedge funds were moving in and, you know, the Blackstones of the world and so on. But also, I mean, I met with uh, Roberto Saviano, the Italian writer, and he says, like, the tax havens is where the, the legal and illegal capitalism meet and merge. So the tax havens are also part of this. We could see in London that, like, 90% of all purchases of homes were made from tax havens and, like, Almost all of them stood empty. And we can see these empty condos in Bangkok or in Ho Chi Minh City or in Munich or in like the, 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 the dark tower syndrome of the world. It's like it's also one of these sick things that happen. So it's, it's money laundering, but it's also legal money. But we don't really know if the money comes in, if, if it's from refugee smuggling or cocaine dealing, or if it's just Ikea or Netflix or, you know, it's like it's all mixed into one big bunch, you know. You're touching on, on three different things. One is another feature of all of these networks that I have looked at, a pattern that I've seen every in every country that I've examined. You know, there are different revenue streams that are captured by these networks in different countries, depending on what is lucrative, right? But there are three that show up absolutely everywhere, and they are finance, 
energy and high-end real estate. And of course, your work has shown that it's not just high-end real estate, it's also you know, low-income real estate, which is even more, if, if possible, even more diabolical. So that's the first point. The second point is that another absolutely universal feature of these networks is that they rely intensively on, I want to say, concentric circles of facilitators and enablers. And without those, they cannot function. And so the inner circle is what I would call facilitators, meaning skilled professionals who sell their services for money to anyone who can pay for them. And they include registered agents, which create the offshore shell companies um, and serve as the post office boxes and the legal representatives whose names are signed on all of the papers, all of the purchase papers, you get to a blank wall. The lawyers, who do the legal work and who also do a lot of the advocacy lobbying for the changes in legislation that these private sector members of the network are looking for or, and also advocate for uh, both for the image of these uh, corrupt entities and people and for the changes in the rules that they want. Um, and then also real estate agents, you know? And I would put Blackstone, I would think of Blackstone as a member of the network. Blackstone is not a facilitator. It is a full-fledged member of the corrupt network. And the third point that I would like to dwell on a little bit is money. It's been a problematic thing since it was invented about in approximately 600 BC. But there are periods of history when money comes to play a very particular role and a p very dangerous role, and we're in one of those periods. And that role is it's no longer a means of exchange. Money has become the sole measuring stick to mark our social standing. Money is what we compete over. We compete over zeros in bank accounts. Um, and the problem, there are two really terrible problems with this. One is that if that's the role money is playing, then there's no such thing as enough. If you seek money in order to have a comfortable life, well, at some point you reach your plenitude, right? You have, quote, enough. But if money is what you're competing over, well, Frederick, did I, what was the return you got on, you know, on push? Well, then my next book had, you know, whatever it is. We, and every zero you have in your bank account, I have to have two more in mine. Um, and that's a race with no finish line. But the, the American billionaires got 25% richer 2020. The right. year we were all suffering a lot. That's, it's kind exactly. Of, it's an, exactly. insane. Yeah. It's insane. And, the, and so we keep on saying, well, how much is enough? We have to understand that when you're engaged in a race like this, there is no such thing as enough. The second thing we have to understand is this. Remember Midas, another Greek myth? Remember that guy? Yes. Well, in, <laughs> he was the guy who every, you know, he did a favor for a god and, 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 and the god offered him one gift in return. He said, I want everything I touch to turn to gold. Do you know that in the United States, the Midas touch is thought of as a positive thing? Oh, wow. Leilani has the Midas touch. Um, what a ridiculous miss. I mean, it just shows how off base we are. 
because what Midas instantaneously learned is that with this touch, everything of sacred value, every flower, every morsel of food he wanted to put in his mouth, water itself turned into lifeless metal. That is the situation we're in now with these billionaires. In the, in the end, he kissed his daughter. Yes, I mean, in, in, in one rendering of the story, he kissed his daughter, meaning human relationships, human creativity. And so if you translate that to the world we're in today, we are living on a finite planet. There are ineffable, irreplaceable values that, you know, there are both tangible values like our forests and our waters, what's, you know, the land, what's on the land, what's under the land, and land being particularly important in the real estate context is being converted into zeros, converted into zeros in bank accounts. And that is what corruption is feeding on, that obsession to turn everything of ineffable, irreplaceable value into electronic signals is the compulsion that corruption is feeding upon. What you offer the work that I'm doing is huge, Sarah. I I think that the notion, I just want to go back a little bit and talk about this idea of networks and mm -hmm. corruption being about networks and relationships. Because I know in my work, I've had that experience where I'm entering an area and I start meeting, not in real time, but notionally, people like Schwartzman, head of Blackstone, and Mnuchin. And then I find out from Aaron Glantz, author of Home Records, that they all live in one building. They all have property in one building in New York on, I don't know, Madison or Park or whatever. And it does have that feeling as an outsider look very much looking in that there is a long-standing unspoken club and I mean Frederick joked on one of our podcasts about them having pizza parties at this at this <laughs> bill in this building but there there is that feeling of this club that has very vast tentacles and the, the, it's not they're not just in New York those tentacles reach out to Ho Chi Minh City and um, to Lagos Nigeria and etc cetera, etc cetera. so I find that a really useful way of understanding this because it feels that way on a gut level and so now you've given a, a, a framework that this it is structural it's created this way and that's how it's how it operates I also really love the Hydra um, um, well, I, I study Greek um, mythology and classics, so I, I quite like it. But, you know, it, it's actually a very dark thing that you're saying. For those of us who are advocates, who, who take to the streets to protest, I mean, the idea that protest can bring down a government that's corrupt, but it doesn't have the result that we want in that upsprings this two-headed monster. I mean, Egypt is the, the perfect example. I've just, you know, I mean, Sisi, the, the people took to the streets in Egypt to very much counter poverty and lack of access to decent housing, etc. And, and corruption. I mean, they were very corruption. explicit about it. They were That's very right. explicit about it. Yeah, because I, I heard one of your talks, uh, Sarah, you made almost like a world map in connecting uprisings with corruption and this is 
totally my own uh, reflection also. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in Chile, where there was a very strong uprising. We, uh, we've seen Beirut coming up and Baghdad. And I mean, the, the Gessim Square uprising in Istanbul, which like it was about the park, but in the end, there were two million people in the country angry over not only trees, about, but about the corrupt structure. My sense is that behind a lot of the popular uprisings around the world, including Hong Kong, is that all doors are locked except for the thieves. For the, I mean, only the rule breakers are the ones who can do well. All the rest, they study, they work hard, but there is nothing coming back. Only the, the, the criminals are taking everything. And, that's and exactly I, right. And I think that's extremely frustrating for people, and that's why people are so angry, also in the U.S. Yes, and that's what drives them to extremes. The idea of the pursuit of money for, for um, and, and money having a value above, uh, it's not the money itself, it's the value that's placed on money that is, I the think you said value. that. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> well, I think that that's right. And I do think um, amassing zeros in a bank account is certainly in the area of residential real estate is absolutely par- a, a big part of this. I think what I think what you're saying is actually bigger and darker in a way because it's it's more than just about money and the value of money. It is about those relationships, it's about controlling the system and 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 so in a certain way for me what scares me is how complete it is. And I think at one point in an interview I heard with you you said that you think everything is sort of derivative after corruption. I mean, it's like everything is a derivative of corruption. And I I guess for me, a question I have for for you, because I know that you're actually kind of optimistic that we can each struggle and fight against this. But when I start thinking, oh, my God, so you mean, all the pursuit I'm on about here, the right to adequate housing for everyday people, poor people, really it's a derivative fight it's a fight against corruption that me that makes me feel a bit scared right it's like well how do we how do we deal with that that the enormity of it one and the second question i'm going to put to you and it's terrible to ask two questions at once i know that um but i'm going to and i have more yeah yeah that's right but i'm going to which is which is this i mean why is corruption bad What's like why it's it's we we think oh corruption is horrible it's um, it's amoral but immoral amoral but for me I need something more when I'm as an advocate when I'm fighting something I need a standard to hold people to to hold the world to 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 say okay we as a as a world um, have embraced certain values and I can point to human rights law as my direction. I mean, it, they, human rights law comes out of the, the lost moral compass after World War or during World War II. And so I'm, I would like to hear from you, like, why is corruption bad? And, and why should we? What's the, what's the imperative to stop it? I guess I should address that first. Yes. And, um, <laughs> it's a small question. <laughs> well, I mean, the answer is it's the arrogation of everything of value to a tight-knit network of cronies. So if we are concerned with the well-being of the greatest number of human beings within the framework of a healthy planet that we're living on, 
corruption is going to destroy that, right? Because corruption is about feeding a bottomless compulsion to transmute all of that. Human beings, their creativity, their labor, their relationships, the land, what's on the land, what's under the land, into zeros, as I said, into electronic signals. So that's the kind of philosophical imperative. Democracy does not exist where systemic corruption exists. The masquerade of democracy exists, but actual democracy does not exist. But let me give you an even more concrete reason. I took a look in On Corruption in America at the last time that the world was in the grip of systemic corruption to the same degree that it is today. And that was the period of, you could call it the Gilded Age Plus, right? From approximately 1870 until approximately 1935. First point that shocked and distressed me was that the syndrome was that the syndrome was identical across the industrialized world, regardless not only of political party, so it wasn't a question of right and left, but even regardless of political system, you had the identical syndrome in the German Empire, in the French Republic, in the English constitutional monarchy, in the American Federal Republic. And not only that, you had the implications of this syndrome um, played out in the colonial regimes in developing countries, right? They were structured in an extractive way that planted the seeds of the corruption that we see in those countries today. So that's one point. The second point is that there were wonderful, dynamic, and incredibly creative protest movements, way better than what we see today, much more sophisticated than what we see today across the industrialized world. And while many of the reforms that they devised were eventually adopted, they were not really adopted until after 1935, at the time when most of these movements, most of them, were crushed. So then my question is, okay, what happened? What caused this turning in approximately 1935? And the answer is terrifying. Two world wars a pandemic that makes COVID look like kindergarten and a global economic meltdown. It took that degree of global calamity to give rise to enough of a feeling of solidarity, which always rises up when humans are collectively under dire threat. It took that degree of calamity to create an opening for this type of reform. So that is the road that we are on today. Believe me, COVID's not enough of a calamity. Believe me, the uh, stock market meltdown of 2008 is n proved not to be enough of a calamity, right? We're still on that road. And those are the types of calamities that lie ahead of us if we don't get a handle on this before the calamity forces us to. And that's why I feel a sense of urgency about this that if anything, is even greater than I felt, you know, when I was working on developing countries. I mean, I could draw you a parallel between the Wall Street bombing that took place outside the offices of J.P. Morgan in 1920, a terrorist attack, and the 9-11 terrorist attacks 80 years later. Um, the 
parallel is just about identical. The reasons, the motivations for the terrorist action and the result, which was that instead of alerting people to the dangers of the kleptocratic systems, what the attacks did was drive the population into the arms of their corrupt leadership, thus reinforcing and enabling the further enrichment of these corrupt networks, resulting in both cases in an economic meltdown within you know, a handful of years, 1929 and 2008. So that's the danger, how we go about addressing it. Let me turn back to the Greek myth. Even Hercules couldn't defeat the Hydra alone. He needed help. He needed the help of his young charioteer, who, you know, was not a mighty club swinging, you know, uh, hero, right? He was a guy with a branding iron, whatever, like a, like a, he cauterized the necks of the Hydra, meaning it's going to take all of us with all of our diverse talents and inclinations coming at this uh, from each of, from our various different directions. Both Leilani and me, the film, and your work, you talked about community, the value of community, the values of community. And in your book, you talk about 180,000 years of community building what we are, humankind. Kind of, and you've seen that then in the villages of Nigeria and Afghanistan, the solidarity within the communities. But, you, but we can also see that these forces, the corrupt networks, are also destroying communities. So that's another common feature of these networks is that they don't take challenge lying down and they deploy a lot of very powerful tactics and counter moves when they come under threat. And one of the most powerful is to divide up their challengers, particularly along identity divides. And that is what has me perhaps the most concerned at the moment, is the identity issues are mobilizing us um, around the world more effectively than this collective fight against corruption that, pe that is striking people from all different communities. And in your work, what you point out is how the use of of housing as an extractive resource is decimating communities and causing groups of people who who were living in a in a great deal of solidarity even if often in poverty but their poverty was often i want to say um I don't want to say mitigated, but softened in some way by the tissue of human relationships that existed in those communities. And that tissue of relationships also made it possible for them to join forces across the identity divides to try to stand up to some of the corrupt power brokers who were coming after them. Now, these power brokers are so unbelievably powerful that even this kind of micro-community level coming together was insufficient. But without those kernels of local communities, there's no standing up to this. And so in a strange way, the purchase of land and buildings in the types of places that push brings us into serves two purposes for kleptocratic networks. It both helps them amass wealth 
which is their end objective, but it also decimates the opposition. If they even create wealth, they mainly also destroy wealth. You know, they they destroy the wealth we have as a community. They destroy value. That's right. They destroy value in order order to create zeros. Let's put it that way. Because they always sell themselves as wealth creators, but they actually, and that's what Saskia Sassen also tells us, that they are just taking wealth and they're, they're, they don't really give a shit what happens with the rest of us and the rest of the society. No, no, they're extracting wealth on behalf of their network members. I, I mean, some of this stuff does make me go a little bit silent, to be honest, because there's a not just because of the enormity of it, but also when you're confronted with this and the, the, the way in which this is uh, really destroying corruption is destroying, as Sarah said, democracy, community, society. Um, you do and the earth to, and the earth, the planet. Um, you do need to go quiet a little bit and um, gather your strength and thoughts, in my opinion, to figure out okay, where to from here? I mean, I uh, you know, as we're talking, I'm charting all the ways in which. Um, Sarah's analysis just completely fits on top of the residential real estate uh, world that we're in, the way in which that network and those the members of that network have cre- have really created their own laws and system, I- exactly as Sarah described it, repurposing the law for their own benefit for those zeros, and really quashing the little guys, the little people to get there, you know, just stepping on the heads of tenants and dwellers around the world, you know, is how I'm picturing this monster. So, so that was that that's my internal landscape. I've just revealed it to you. <laughs> Leilani, I'm, I'm, I'm reading, almost read it all, on corruption in America and what is at stake. That's Sarah's latest book. And that's like you look into the United States of America and the corrupt networks, and it's really scary. It's really scary. And it's it's very close to what we talk about. And I and I and maybe I don't know if I told you, Sarah, I, I, once, I once made a film called Bananas, where I followed banana workers in Nicaragua who are suing Dole Food Company for a use of pesticide that made them sterile. And when I presented the film, I got sued by Dole, uh, and it, I was in a big legal fight. But, it, but that was one thing. The other thing was how they used the PR companies to really go after me, how they managed to, to even get AP and LA Times and you know big newspapers to go after me, say, and without even having seen my film, and they, they, they were so smart. So then I made a follow-up film called Big Boys Gone Bananas where I looked into the, the PR industry, but also the kind of the way how they move uh, the public debate. The, I mean, and, and in your book, it's even deeper. It's very much also about how they change legislation, how they, I mean, also now during the, the, the Trump regime, how they he put the guy into the environmental protection agency and started to sell out the parks, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it sounds like a silly, crazy going to, you know, provoking populist politics, but it's actually not. It's very delicate way of selling out public uh, property. And that's very clear in your book. And, And of course, the Blackstones taking over a lot of private homes in the US is also part of this. And you also mentioned there a, a man called uh, Minuchin who became a minister with with Trump, and he's in the po- we, we talked about him with Aaron Glantz in the podcast about uh, the big takeover of the homes in the U.S. 
But, but there is, and this Mnuchin then in the other hand, he's also have his hand into the art business. You know, it's like it's, so it's, it's not only the evil sitting somewhere in, you know, in an evil tower. It's also out there on the cocktail parties with, between the famous artists and so on. It's like it's, it's nasty. So that's the, I want to say, almost the larger kind of soft cushion of enablers that, you know, I talked about those concentric circles of facilitators and enablers. So they're the service providers that you folks have been focusing on. And then these enablers, you know, it's a vast, vast um, kind of cushion. And I see it, so another um, tactic of these networks is to inject their own drug into the arms of their of, of potential opponents, meaning money. So what I'm seeing today is a very strategic use of donations by foreign and domestic kleptocrats, uh, certainly in the United States, but all over the place. I mean, you've got people in Putin's circle who have been making massive donations, you know, to Oxford or to the National Portrait Gallery in London, the famous Sackler Museum, you know, the whole opioid crisis in the United States is an outgrowth of this very phenomenon we're talking about. I find my former employer, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, has just taken a four and a half million dollar donation from Charles Koch. Now, this is a gentleman who who personifies the private sector element of the U.S. corrupt network, who has devoted his professional life to dismantling democracy in the United States, whose businesses are guilty of nearly 500 violations of environmental uh, labor and antitrust law over the past decade, who single-handedly was largely responsible for decimating what had been a consensus on uh, human-caused climate change in the 1990s. And the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace is delighted to take four and a half million dollars of his money. This is what you're talking about, Frederick. It's that this has penetrated the cocktail parties and, and respectable society in, in, throughout our countries, developed and developing. And um, which, which makes it harder to fight, of course, because whenever you, indeed. whenever Lelani or me or you talks about these guys, also our friends. No, but he's a nice guy. Exactly. No, he's a nice guy. He actually loves art and exactly. he likes artists. Yes. And I actually went to dinner with him and he had nice wine, you know, and he cracked nice jokes and his wife is really cool. A hundred percent. You're exactly right. And it goes deeper than that. And this is this is why I went back to Midas. I realized that this is actually at a cultural level and you know, I'm not saying drop housing and work on culture. We all have to work in our different, from our different angles. But what you said, Leilani, that my description of networks, you know, is kind of confirming something that you yourself have been observing. 
I mean, I find it absolutely stunning that much of the self-described pro-democracy and pro-humanity segment of our populations is so blind to this stuff. I mean, to the point of, I think, and I suspect you two have, have both experienced this, to the point of what feels like denial. So I started thinking about that. When people are in denial, what's going on? it's usually that there's a, something painful, right? So what's the pain here? And I thought some more and I thought, you know, human beings like to look in the mirror and see something that they can respect. They like to look in the mirror and see a little halo up there, right? <laughs> so, if, so even beyond the billionaire kleptocrat I met him at a cocktail party, let's look at ordinary comfortable people if their comfort, which has been increasing, Frederick, as you pointed out, during the pandemic and, and uh, during and after the crash of 2008, if ordinary comfortable people owe their comfort to vast impersonal economic uh, cycles or economic forces, they all often talk in terms of forces, well, then they are blameless. They are just lucky enough to have had the education or have the career track to allow them to benefit from that. If, however, their comfort is an offshoot of the workings of a kleptocratic network that includes criminal behavior, well, then, then the person with the nice salary looking in the mirror mm, becomes, to some extent, a holder of stolen goods, a re, you know, receiver of stolen goods. It's a lot harder to see that halo in the mirror if you have to acknowledge that you are in receipt of stolen goods. And frankly, that is what much of our elites are. And that's why they don't really want to know about this. And that's why the pushback against you and me, or if not active, violent pushback, just let's not think about that. Let's drive on, <laughs> you know, move along, move along, nothing of interest here, you know. Um, that's sometimes the reaction that we get. Reading your book, I, th I, I, you know, I think, Sarah, you have a good lawyer, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you folks too, but I actually think maybe the more <laughs> devastating response is just pass it by in silence just ignore it uh, and and i and that's what i think is really troubling i have actually found and i'd be interested to hear whether you folks have that people that i kind of expected to find this useful in their own efforts to combat this whew, it really didn't lodge with them, or, or sometimes they react a little bit defensively. Have you had that experience? Not so much, actually. I think more mind blown by what push reveals, for example. A lot of people in my sector sort of like, whoa, we didn't know. Wow. Um, not so much the, but I do, I, I do get it when I start traveling in, in different circles. So when I start trying to talk to governments about like 
hello, you can't do housing over here and not look at finance, corruption, all of these things over there. That's when I get that it comes down completely. I mean, it's like, and, and I think there's a gender element here. I don't want to get too into into the gender element. But I do think there's like, um, who is this little woman trying to pierce this veil or pierce this world that we've constructed i i do feel there's that element but it's certainly with governments and any anyone that touches on the industry of real estate or housing if i start really pushing and saying look like they're they're changing laws for their own benefit they're getting away from they don't have to pay tax on this and they they're allowed to do that and then they whitewash it by giving green and I, I get a lot of pushback there, I'd say, in, within the industry, for sure. But as you say, they are the enablers. Absolutely. They are the ones who are, you know, whether it's a, a real estate agent, uh, someone who's trying to get people to invest in housing, they don't want to hear from me. And there is that shutdown. I mean, and, and it's, it is a very dark subject, obviously, corruption. But, but the hope lies in understanding it and seeing the pattern and you do that really well to help us to understand it sarah and i and i to be optimistic i can see that more and more people around the world i mean governments are also not trying to fix tax loopholes they're, they're like they're going a little bit more after the the tax evaders they're trying to to lock some doors at least some doors for the for the corrupt uh, there's a lot more to do, but, but only seeing your book out there and your work and and the interest for your work tells also a story that there is a, enough of us pissed off with this behavior, and it's time to to so let's, we have to bring more people into this circle and and to see what's going down. I think in housing in particular, that was uh, the last thing I wanted to say is your work among that of other people has really shined a spotlight on housing um, to the point that I can see changes, particularly in the lack, you know, the lack of regulation, you know, the lack of due diligence requirements for real estate. You know, it's as though banks have to do due diligence on people who open accounts, but you know, a fantastically expensive set of properties in London is the equivalent of a bank account. And you do see a push, a pretty concerted push, at least for some types of regulation of that sector. But I love your focus and the focus of push on the intersection between the finance industry and the, and the real estate industry, because that is where the crux of this really lies. And power to you. And the finance industry is then filled up with corrupt money because we. I mean, so it's, and I and I think that's that's so important to understand that when money is laundered, it is just money. We pay taxes, we work hard, but we compete with money that is like stolen and tax evasive, and 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 that money is not only the. The cocaine smugglers, it's also the big corporations who refuse to pay taxes. And who violate environmental and labor laws and who underpay their workers and who do just all kinds of things. And I want to just point out specifically within the finance industry right now, it is private equity. 
which is also fantastically underregulated and the perfect vehicle for money laundering at the moment um, because none of the investments need to be disclosed um, and no due diligence requirements exist on private equity companies. But to your point on it's just money, Frederick, you reminded me of a comment made by, you know, some lady in a tiny poor town on the banks of the Ohio River here in West Virginia. Um, when I asked about corruption, what does it mean to you? And she answered, money washes hands. And I found those to be three incredibly profound words, right? What it means is exactly what you just said, Frederick. Not only does the money, once it's washed, become just money, but again, because money is a mark of social standing, if you have a lot of it, all of a sudden your hands are presumed to be clean, when in fact what your work has revealed is that having a great deal of money is usually a, a very clear indicator of dirty hands, not clean ones. Leilani, we've been, into, uh, we've been learning a lot today. <laughs> a lot. It was a perfect place to end, in my opinion, with those yeah. dirty hands. <laughs> yeah. I, I, we should all read uh, Sarah's work, uh, Sarah Chase, on corruption in America and what is at stake can be found. Don't buy it through Amazon. Try to go to your local bookshop and order it so you can support them. We like the local economy because we don't want to, I mean, also the... The financialized system is like everywhere, also in the Starbucks and, and the Amazon. So don't go there, but, but buy the book. And Leilani, um, what a day. We have to thank th Sarah for, for being a part of our, our talks, giving your time. A big thanks, Sarah. It was fascinating. And uh, I really hope people listen to this podcast and buy your book and read it from an independent seller. <laughs> I'm so grateful to consider myself a member of your community, both of you. <laughs> Thank you. And let's, let's keep talking, Sarah. Thank you very much. Yes, please. And, mm -hmm. and Leilani, we, we have something to say in the end. Uh, we don't have any sponsors. That's because we don't want to have ads running in our show. Because we, we, it's normally you'll get a lot of stupid things coming in. That's uh, true. But we need resources. Oh. Clean money. Clean money. <laughs> Yeah. Com community so, support yeah that's right community support through our patreon account you can find it wherever you download this podcast and you can you could see it as you buy me and leilani a glass of wine or something like that mm -hmm. so you don't have to pay more but it's like we need wine to be able to to take yes. all this so. and everyone should take huge pity on me and the my 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 uh country folk we are about to go into a 28-day lockdown uh, because of the third wave of this virus. So uh, I need wine. You S need send money wine. and wine. Okay. <laughs> wine, like the, the wine aid to Canada. Yeah. Thank you very much, Leilani. Thank you, Sarah. And uh, see you soon next week, I guess. Thanks, Frederick. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you both. Thanks. Bye. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To watch Push, visit pushthefilm.com. You can also support us by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again next week. <laughs>